Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. Get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com slash race. And whisper it when you type it in. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for Episode 9 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the comedy Trump's fragility episode. I'm Raquel Cepeda here in Panoply's New York studios with my homie Baratunde Thursday. Welcome back! What's up, what's up? We missed you. Yamas, it's good to be back. So, so did you solve the austerity crisis? I mean, I, I think I, I delayed uh, the inevitable future pain that, that's coming and <laughs> I was able to be a bit of a salve for the Greek people. It was, it was a good time. All right. And because Tanner Colby is out this week enjoying a well-deserved and overdue vacation with his family in the Berkshires. <laughs> I was actually saying the Berkshires before because I didn't know how to pronounce Sounds it. Sounds more like we're hobbits. Yeah, exactly. Shires, yeah. We have a special guest today sitting in for him, the extraordinary writer, author, political and cultural analyst and critic, Farai Chidea. Yeah. Hello. What up, Farai? So happy to be here with you. And have learned that you are preparing for a fight, Raquel. You are, as mentioned last episode, the champion in the Golden Gloves in your division. Yes, and you yes. have another national, profe- national champion. National <laughs> champion. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're amazing. So I'm Thank just happy you. to be here. And of course, you're always amazing, Barry. You're today. an amazing sister from another mister over here for <laughs> right. this is, this is And you guys are, are, are uh, bound by Harvard, too, right? Yes, yeah. we are. Yeah. And actually, a little history thing. One of the reasons I think that I'm sitting here is because of this woman right there, Farai Chidea. Her show News and Notes on NPR was one of my very first national media experiences. And then she made the mistake of bringing me back several times. <laughs> uh, so I got used to it. I got, I got he thirsty got a for fan it. base. <laughs> so it Thank really you. is great to have you here. Thirsty. Thank you. Yeah. On our last episode, we covered white fragility or the challenges of handling racial-based stress amongst in in the white community that is uh the donald trump effect and pc comics also we've received quite a few uh requests for about race merchandise we're listening and we're looking into that but for now let's get into what you had to say about this and that so the first email i wanted to address came from lisa who lives in raleigh north carolina and it's called on the subject heading she wrote tiny soapbox tourette's So, hi guys, love the show. I just have a tiny little soapbox today, and I know it's really small, but you all are among a group of podcasts I listen to that are really helping me to be more thoughtful and inclusive in my speech and in my world in general, and that inspires me to write this note. Raquel was talking today about how Donald Trump feels, the need to uh, blurt out how rich he is all the time, and she said something about it feeling like a Tourette's thing. That's something I would have said a year ago, but just like learning not to use the word retard, and many years ago learning not to use the word gay slanderously, and that sort of thing, I am now learning to try and just not use any disability as a joke, because I realize there's always going to be somebody who could be offended by it and I never want that to happen. 
A little less than a year ago, my six-year-old was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, and things are only going to get harder from here for a while, and it's heartbreaking. And I know you wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And in case there are any other listeners with that experience or any other difficult experiences, I just thought I would share how much I'm learning from smart, progressive thinkers about how to include everyone and not hurt anyone. And it almost felt like you taught me how to say back to you that it hurt my feelings to hear and to think of my sweet little boy ever feeling hurt by a joke because of something he can't help. The hardest thing in the world for a mother is to see their child feel hurt or sad, and it really gives me a whole new understanding of how anyone would feel when they are in any kind of a minority group. I feel that way as a woman many times, but having the pain of seeing your child be the other, in quotes, who is put down by others is even more of an intense learning experience. Hope this all makes sense, and thanks for all that you do. Love the podcast. So, of course, I wanted to open up saying, as a mom, and as a mom who sees everybody's child as my child, your child is my child, I am so sorry. It's totally my bad, and thank you very much for pushing me to grow. And I'm really sorry. That was insensitive. Yeah, I think... Anybody that, else want to... Yeah, uh, I, was, I, I immediately thought of um, Tim Howard, the amazing soccer player. Oh, um, yeah, the, 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 US. The, the Secretary of Defense. Oh yes, like exactly. Like nominating yes. him for U.S. Secretary. Yeah, of exactly. So the goalie. The goal. Yeah. The goalie, and he has Tourette's, and so um, you know he always, in some ways, said that that gave him a sense of focus and discipline, and I had never thought about using the word Tourette's as a slur, um, but. I can see how it is, you yeah, know, and yeah. I, I really appreciate that letter. That's very thoughtful. Yeah, and I remember when my daughter was younger, she had a speech impediment where she um, would stutter somewhat, you know, and I th- and the doctors told me they would, you know, she would grow out of it and she did, but she may not have. And, at, you know, at the same time, I saw people making fun of her and, yeah. and it hurt me. So to see that, because usually when it comes to the mom, I don't care what anybody says about me, but to ever you know, put a child in a place. It don't bring my kids they, into this. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. kids are like off, kids and mamas are like off limits. <laughs> so I'm really happy that she brought this to me because I actually had to go back and re-listen to that. Yeah. Because I didn't even realize what I was doing. And I don't think it's right to do it on air or even if I was, in, and you know, having dinner with a friend. It's but just it, totally but it's, fucked it's, up. it's very common. So don't beat yourself up and we'll just all move on and I learn something. So I appreciate the tone of her message. I've been in this situation before. In telling jokes, I pseudo-retracted a tweet where I made some joke about diabetes. And I think it actually connects to the whole comedy sensitivity thing, which I obviously wasn't around for on the last episode, but would have had some things to say about. And, you know, the, the, the direction of the joke and, like, who is the victim or who's the target is an important question, uh, as well as who's making it, what's the context. So if this is somebody with Tourette's, you know, talking about their experience and kind of self-deprecating, self-mocking, that's very different. It's like in-group, out-group. Right, Talking about your family versus somebody talking about your family. But it's also fascinating to me as we, as a show, try to encourage people to take more open minds, to approach this national conversation with more consciousness uh, that we all got some work to do. Right, exactly. It, like we we've all been on that other yeah. side where it's like, so none of us, like we're all on tiny soapboxes. <laughs> right, right. And, and sometimes there's somebody else on a soapbox talking to us. Uh, so as, as our society moves ahead and we see, like, like she said, gay used to be an acceptable pejorative. And now like, you just, you wouldn't do that. Because like, oh, our humanity is expanding to include, you know, more of its members. So that's a good thing. Uh, I also, that, that was a very humble apology on your part, Raquel. So well, it was very as heartfelt. your co-discussant, it's, well it's, done. 
it's it, it was heartfelt. And speaking of PC Comics, have you did you listen to? Did you get a chance to listen to White Snack on uh, WTF? I haven't listened to the episode yet. I've read the some of the excerpts and I've read analysis of it, but sitting down and listening to WTF takes a bit of yeah. emotional time that I haven't been able to make this week. So right. I will get to it very soon. Yeah. You'll get to it. Is that yeah. your way of saying you don't want to comment? No, I mean, John look. Stewart's white fragility. It's uh, <laughs> alleged, <laughs> alleged, alleged. Sorry, I have to say. I mean, here, here's what. I, <laughs> Let's I mean, roll tape. <laughs> based on what I said, and for those of you who who are not caught up on this, WTF is the podcast hosted by Mark Maron. We discussed it recently because President Obama was on it, which was a big cue. But Mark has comedians on. I've been on. He likes to go to dark, dirty places in your past and and bring up all kinds of emotional and psychological stuff. And Wyatt Sinek, who was on The Daily Show for four, maybe five years, uh, was recently on the show and talked about a big break in his time in that show where he and Jon Stewart had it out. He was criticizing Jon Stewart's mockery of Herman Cain. He likened it to Kingfish uh, and sort of a, a blackface kind of uh, character caricature that he didn't think Stewart should have been doing. And Jon Stewart freaked out on him and cursed him out. And Wyatt said he wasn't sure if he lost his job because he said, I'm done with you, uh, with a lot more foul language attached to that. So I read all that. And that's why so I'm willing to comment to that extent. It's not like I, I've read the direct reports myself. I have nothing <laughs> to say on this matter. And I think the other producers of the show were quoted in a number of outlets saying, like, yeah, the show has some blind spots. Yeah. And we acknowledge that and we're not perfect and we're trying to get better. So that was like the redeeming piece of it i don't think john stewart said anything about it and he's doing his final lap on the show by the time people hear this he will have two or three shows left in his life as host of the daily show and he's like this unassailable liberal hero so it's very painful for many people to imagine this guy who we put up on a pedestal a different type of soapbox uh, doing something so racially ins- insensitive. Yeah. And I mean, I'd rather be, and, and in some ways when I was <laughs> listening to uh, White's and X yeah. interview, I was like, I'd rather be insulted than be completely invisible as I feel like, like you know, Latinos are mm. on that on that show. Yeah, yeah. I talk about blind spot. You need to write a letter to Trevor Noah saying, um, hire some Latino people here i'm sure the, the new that i have a feeling they know what they're doing there now <laughs> I, have, I have a feeling that they're going to address some things our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by audible.com audible has over 180,000 audiobooks you can download the books and access them on a bunch of different devices you got your iphones android kindle ipod or pretty much any other mp3 player one book to try out that we're going to recommend Arc of Justice, a saga of civil rights and murder in the jazz age. That book is a beautiful and ugly, at the same time, historic tale of a black family that moved into a white neighborhood in Detroit in the 1920s or 30s, and they faced mobs of angry white people, a very active Klan community, and set a legal precedent in the courts that went to the highest court in the land, argued by some very, very famous lawyers working on behalf of the NAACP. This is a dramatic, real story that is a part of U.S. history most of us don't know. Beautifully told, uh, very good education for all of you. So check out The Arc of Justice, a saga of civil rights on Audible. Face it, you like listening to us. We assume you like listening to other smart things. This is a smart book. Audible's got you covered. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. You can get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com. Slash race. That's a u d i b l e dot com slash race. 
So I'm going to move on. It's This one's called uh, 12% for Trump, and it's but it's from Kimberly. Sitting in my car, so I send this before I forget. Yes, there are Hispanics who can side with Trump. If Raquel wants to look into this, congrats on the title. I don't want to get in crossways with you. I'd point you to Congressman Lamar Smith. He represents a viewpoint of many second and third generation patriotic Hispanic veterans who never spoke Spanish in their homes and spend their Saturday nights at the VFW Hall. They are not calling Mexican nationals rapists, but they are also pro-border patrol. As a reporter, I look forward to a reboot of the GOP that is inclusive. The Dems in Texas are two notes, pro-union and pro-choice, and both parties need to get on with more nuanced governing. Not a capital G. I hate you, autocorrect. Signed, Kimberly. This, this, this reboot of the Republican Party, I look forward to it as well. But it keeps getting delayed. I think there's some some system failures in the mm-hmm. software that don't allow it. After 2012, when Romney lost out on so many black and brown people, Rance Priebus, the head of the GOP, commissioned this beautiful report, as well as did, I think, the young Republicans saying, look, we got to get our stuff together. We can't keep scaring black and brown people away. They're the future, and we got to be able to appeal to them. And there was all this, like, soul-searching and politicos writing these thought pieces about the, what's going to be the new Republican brand and is it about communications or substance was kind of the discussion. And then Trump has come in and <laughs> like said, no, 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 no. We don't need to reboot anything. We need to double down on this corrupt file system that we have. I, I think the anti-immigration, like anti-brown rantings and ravings of angry, uh, declining in the health status white men, largely, who are forcing themselves to be the face of this party and not letting them get into the future is a huge problem for them. I like this email. But I would say, like, how does this person feel about that reboot being so delayed by people like Trump who don't seem to want to get to the future uh, soon? Yeah, well, and we'll- Trump is not even in some ways the big problem. The problem is that very few people are willing to criticize him from his own party. Yeah. You know, cause it's- because I, be- I think they agree with him in some ways. Well, yeah, they're they're afraid to criticize him. They're afraid to seem like they're giving in to the Latinos. Your people, your people cannot My be people. given so, into. You know, you know what we're talking about here? The context <laughs> in, in what she's writing is, you know, we read one of the polls and I, where they said that he was up with Latinos. And I'm like, well, to me, even though it's a small number, yeah. I'm very interested in getting to know who that number is. And, and people write it off as, oh, they must be the Cubans in, my, in Florida. But I'm like, the Cubans in Miami and yeah. Florida are rocking with Rubio. I don't really see them following Trump. So, so, so Farai, you've covered every presidential election since 1996. Yes. So I'm sorry, first of all, for your loss. <laughs> I've loved your every minute Your losses are gained. And, like, and thank really. you for your service. Yeah. You know, like, I, I enjoy it. Can you help us understand like why his favorability among certain Latinos would increase for somebody like a Trump? What do you see going on with this? Republican race and their appeal? Well, I have some very conservative relatives who are black and not Latino. But what I would say is that I think a lot of times, and this is judging from my reporting, but also from my relationship with my conservative relatives, and we'll have very freewheeling conversations mm-hmm. about politics. I think a lot of times it's it's really cultural norming to where you live. And so if you're living in a super conservative area where everyone is kind of caught up in a belief system, I don't mean this as pejoratively as it sounds, yeah. because I'm not saying these people are violent and dangerous and all that. But you look at the police officers in the Freddie Gray case and there's in Baltimore. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's black police officers. It's the system of 
belief. It's not about the skin color. I think and I so, that. so, That's how I became a Red Sox fan. I don't like baseball. <laughs> but I lived in Boston for 12 years. You just right. become that which you hate. You know? Well, I mean, I think that for, for some conservative African Americans and for some conservative Latinos, they're norming to their local culture, mm. whatever and wherever that is. And, and if that means sometimes saying the border must be held at any cost. And frankly, we're paying every cost and we're not holding the border and it's total BS. And all everything we're doing at the border is wrong. That should be the title of a book. <laughs> that's, that's great. That might be the title of this B-side. I mean, I also I'm, I'm going to nominate that. I also think that sometimes it has to do with, you know, how we, how we are miseducated in school yeah. and learn to be divided and mm-hmm. how separate we are and how different we are. We learn about all these things. And, you know, we have been taught that Mexicans are the boogeyman and they want to come in and you know even though they were here first Mm -hmm. they want to come in and take over and rape all your you know your 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 daughters and your mothers and your children so trump using that on his huge soapbox so i think that i mean latinos that are um that are even if it's one percent i just think that has to do with like goes back to american crime remember that scene where he was like it's not me i'm american they're the mexicans even though you're talking about your own family this thing is kind of like self-loathing i don't know I have, I think for me at the base of like all of our problems is spirituality. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to come off hokey. Ooh. But it kind of new agey cuz God, I mean you guys know I am not that. But you know, I just feel like sometimes that's to do with that. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. With, you know, and by the way, AC just slapped me with uh, that percentage that poll I was talking about before and it was from the Daily Kos where it said that 13% of Latinos are viewing him favorably. But I'm going to move on because that has to do with the next listener email. This one is called The Context of the Polls in Which Donald Trump is, quote, ahead. Hmm. And this is from Adriana. And she said, check out this story from On the Media, which I did. It was like a, you know, 10-minute bit. Uh, The media has been fixating on Donald Trump's surprising, quote, surge in the polls. But the real story, according to Bob Garfield from On the Media, is more predictable. The media's sloppy and disingenuous use of polls to fill airtime and manufacture conflict. I actually spoke to my mentor who was around for the whole Reagan, you know, for, yeah, for Reagan. And um, he told me that a lot of the same kind of rhetoric even though uh, Reagan said it a lot more eloquently that, you know, Trump is spewing, Reagan was also spewing. People were saying, oh, no, don't listen to the polls. It's BS. You know, he's, he'll never win, not in a million years. He's an actor. Don't take him seriously. And he ended up winning. And he said that, don't be surprised if Donald Trump gets far. He may not win. So I wouldn't totally discount the polls. Mm. But what do you say, Baratunde? You sitting there I, I don't, just I don't want to rolling imagine, your eyes. I don't want to imagine that world. You know, I don't want to imagine what where Donald Trump, quote unquote, gets far. I, I, I love on the media, you know, as a show, as a podcast, mm-hmm. and I respect the, the folks over there. I think, I think we have gotten earlier in the process more caught up with the concept of a horse race. And like when you have so many candidates running, it probably skews the whole system. And the role that Fox News has been playing this time around in terms of determining who gets into that first Republican debate, being driven by national polls, just drives more of a media frenzy around interpreting these polls, probably drives more polls to be taken. We ignore the whole margin of error. So yeah, I I think it's still, I think it's way too early. I think there's a lot of people who've done well in the polls at this stage in the process, never to be heard from again. And something comes out and the idea of Donald Trump getting far, given the truth of his background, the divorces, the crazy commentary, the weird hair, the, the, the weird hair, the is democratic, gonna, yeah, okay. you know, alignments of his history. Like, I think he is a, a very entertaining 
figure and like an id that people are kind of glomming onto because he's the only one who's capable of rising above the noise of a field with like 28 people in it so far. Well, I, I, I predict Trump will stay in it until at least the beginning of next year. But the super PAC hammer is getting ready to fall. Yeah. You know, yeah, the Koch like you... brothers are going to pay for this. Yeah. So, like, yeah. we put a lot they, of money. They'll take, they'll yeah, take out a hit Scott if they have Walker. to. are not going to ruin our investment. Yeah. He yeah. has the real Donald Trump. The real hater is Scott would be Scott Walker. Okay. So, we received a lot of emails about white fragility. But what I'm hoping happens in the future is that more people will leave us voice memos because some of these emails are long. We want to get to as many as possible because we want your voice to be heard. And you we should can, send those voice memos to showaboutrace at gmail.com. And we can maybe digitally alter it to make you sound like a chipmunk or like Donald Auto-tune. Trump. We'll do you auto-tune. Know, we'll, we'll auto-tune you through the app, you know, <laughs> T-Pain app. So this one's from uh, Abraham. And he says, white people don't care as much about race as people of color do. We can usually avoid talking about it. And when we do talk about it, it's often not as emotionally resonant as it is for non-white people. We're not as burdened by it. It's just not that big of a deal for us most of the time. When I'm around white friends, it's almost it's, it almost never comes up. So here's the thing. White people only really have these conversations with non-white people. And as a white person, there are only three outcomes that I can expect from a conversation about race with a non-white person. The first one is, it turns out I am not a racist, which, like most white people already thought anyway, hooray, status quo, and maybe a little warm fuzzy. But that's by far the best possible outcome, and it's not that compelling. Number two, it turns out I do or say some racist things, but maybe don't know or don't mean it or am otherwise not really a racist. You guys went to great lengths to make this seem like it's different from the third option. Number three, it turns out I am a racist. And the other thing is, as a white person being told by a non-white person that something I do or say is racist, there's no response other than, quote, you're right, I'll stop. I can't argue with it because there's no way to win. Maybe theoretically, intellectually, that's not true, but in practice, as a white person, if a, if a person of color tells me something I'm doing is racist, I can't disagree without sounding even more racist. It's like the old joke. So when did you stop beating your wife? So why would white people ever want to have these conversations? It's not white fragility. It's white rationality. Mm, Farai, I'm looking at you. I, I think he has a point. But I also think that that's... I'm just going to be very blunt here. Mm -hmm. It's a cowardly way to live your life. If you don't challenge yourself to have challenging conversations with people around you, you never learn anything about the world. Like I've talked to Klan's people face to face, and obviously not everybody's going to want to do that, but I wanted to know what they thought about the world. You're like an extreme conversationalist. I'm an extreme (laughs) conversationalist. (laughs) But like, you know, I have, I, I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, a gentrifying neighborhood, and there white people who won't even talk to the old West Indian ladies. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. They were built for friendliness. Okay, <laughs> they might give you a stern talking to if you don't pick up your doggy do, but they're very, very friendly. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what I'm saying is maybe you don't start out with, like, the hard case. Maybe you start out with the West Indian grandmother mm-hmm. and just start a little conversation. So, I mean, you know, I have only so much patience for that approach. Um, although I do think that on a rational level, if you're looking to lead a risk-free life, never talk to a black or brown person ever. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm not going to add And some white people don't. <laughs> well, the society is supposed to make that pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to move on. From Roderick Morrow, co-host 
of the Black Guy Who Tips podcast. Oh, awesome. I love this dude. And he said, what yeah. up? He said in the PS, what up, Baritone Day? Why didn't you tell me you had a podcast? Thanks for letting me interview you on our show. Okay. So, hey, guys. I was listening to your latest episode about white fragility, and you said to write in with our experiences with it. In the last week, I've dealt with white fragility about race nonstop on Twitter because of a joke I made about Bernie Sanders' racially tone-deaf supporters. I started with a hashtag... Hashtag Bernie So Black after dealing with his obsessive Twitter fans. You can read about it here. And for the last five days, my Twitter feed has been full of white people who want to lecture me about race and how I shouldn't expect more of a white political ally or else they'll stop supporting black people at all. Have you guys ever experienced something like this? Thanks for reading this. Yo. Okay, so people really should check out his podcast. It's funny. (laughs) It's smart. It's good. And I I was on it uh, a couple years ago. White people, <laughs> I'm going to generalize now, they they like to be very, uh, we don't have any in the room, so I can just, uh, yeah, just, just, get, just, just put it all out white there. people within view right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, with, <laughs> our producer AC is half white, he likes to remind me. Uh, and uh, and producer Laura Mayer just popped in. Uh, funny, I had I just, no idea As soon as I started talking white. about white people, they show up. <laughs> I had no idea AC's half white. <laughs> He's kept that from you. Okay. Now I understand why he always looks like so sad anytime we say something bad about white people. <laughs> so I, I get uh, the short answer to, to Roderick is yes. I've had that experience because I think, you know, when we when you guys talked last time about it, a lot of the heart of white fragility and, and white people getting into this conversation is the the label of racist implies like evil, bad person. If someone says you said a racist thing, they're saying you're a bad person. Like you, you're a godless heathen. Like you're the worst thing that could be walking on this planet. And so if if he is implying that Bernie Sanders isn't you know, like down for the cause, and there's a whole bunch of mostly white people who love Bernie Sanders, then he is implying that white people who like Bernie Sanders are bad because they don't think about black people enough. And then that can flip sometimes. And I've definitely seen it where folks are like, you should be grateful because of the largesse of white society. Like, we we set you free, right? We gave you the right to vote. We gave we gave you a black president and Oprah and Michael Jordan, like all these these gifts, these these privileges, which are just basic human rights, are seen as some. Oprah con- is a basic. Human it's like right. an IOU. <laughs> yeah, Oprah is a basic. She's not a gift from white people. I mean, I guess structurally speaking, it was a probably a white corporation that delivered us to it, right. but she worked hard for that. Right, you know exactly. I mean? So I, I think there's a lot of um, IOU ness that can come up in the race conversation, a lot of credit seeking where it's like, not only am I not a racist, you're lucky to have people like me in this world. And it's like, listen, black people, you're lucky the Democratic Party thinks about you as much as they do. We don't have to do any of this. I think it's like a subtly veiled threat almost. Like, if you want to see racist, we could do that. Yeah. I gave a talk at the Schomburg yesterday, which is like an amazing library. They have great events. They had like a, recently they had a Black Lives Matter event that was off the hook. Um, they always have really interesting talks and they have a lot, a lot, a lot of archival material you can use to research the immigrant experience and also the black experience in New York and America. And anyway, I was there speaking to a, like about maybe 35 teachers of every background you could think of uh, who teach um, uh, grammar school, high school, no college, high school and grammar school. And there was one, there was every white men, black men, white women, everybody mix. Anybody, it was a rainbow coalition. So there was a white lady all the way at the end who looked really angry. And I was actually uh, helping them teach Bird of Paradise, my book, How I Became Latina, because it challenges the one note narrative of, you know, coming here, quote unquote, illegally and being saved by a white English teacher. Right. 
Um, so she had one bone to pick with me, and it was very, and she was very upset. Why do I call Native Americans Indigenous Americans? And I was like, I must be hearing this wrong because they were here first. Well, you're being divisive by calling them oh my um, gosh. first Indigenous Americans. I'm like, but I will always call them Indigenous Americans because they were here and words are important. Yeah, and then I don't understand, like, somebody else was confused about me calling Columbus the discovered and not the discoverer. It was just so weird, but yeah. this particular one white lady just crawled up into the corner and afterwards when people wanted to talk to me and have me sign their book, she was just throwing me like evil eye, evil eye the whole time in the corner. She doesn't handle um, racial-based stress very well, I guess. <laughs> when you flip the narrative Absolutely. around, you threaten people's sense of self yeah. and belonging and identity and, and value. I, I started reading a piece recently. I haven't even finished it yet, but I think we throw it in the show notes for this. And it basically reframes, like if we talked about monolingual white children, the way we talk about bilingual children, people would lose their shit. (laughs) And the idea of like, oh, you know, little Sally has only been exposed to 30,000 words in her life and none from a language other than English. And she's like not going to be prepared for the world. And she's behind. There's a a skills gap and a learning gap with these very limited. How is she going to qualify for bilingual jobs? She'll never be able to work abroad. If you see bilingual (laughs) as the, the standard and monolingual as the crutch or the defect, You've changed the whole thing. You take Columbus to somebody who discovered, to somebody who was discovered by people already here. Yeah. You blow open every history book and every sense of pride and, like, passive white superiority that's ever been taught to, to this person who thinks of himself right. as a good person. Who's, when she went to the Schomburg Center. She must be and a she must teach English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's trying to she's be She's saving that, a bunch of black and Latino movie. kids. Yeah, yeah. she's got Coolio soundtrack running <laughs> in her head all day, every day. Yeah, exactly. but, you know, it's, it, the education that we get about the world is so lacking here in the U.S. And so you have to keep educating yourself. Yeah. I remember learning a few years ago about the Sami people who are the white indigenous people of northern Europe. Mm. So they're indigenous people in Europe and being in this super frozen area they're white and that alone may give people some perspective indigenous people are everywhere yeah, yeah they exactly. are they are of the place that they still live and they were there first yeah. exactly and exactly. they don't have to As be black Mexicans. they don't have to be black brown or asian they can be white too yeah you know? white indigenous people yeah. i love it so i'm going to i'm going to read one more email the next email is called white fragility and it's from christina an american woman living in madrid in spain hey all from madrid Anyway, I wanted to comment on white fragility and my own struggle with it. As a white woman, I used to be very defensive on the issue of race. I used to think, hey, I'm a woman. I deal with misogyny on a daily basis. I know discrimination, too. I was wrong in what I thought I understood. My former partner was a person of color, and I know at times felt frustrated with my defensiveness, uncomfortableness, and or lack of understanding when we spoke about race and issues people of color face every day, specifically saying that others won't take the time to be slow in understanding of my lack of understanding. It took time for me to fully recognize my white privilege and to be comfortable talking about race. I think it's important for white people to get over this white fragility hump. Although I don't believe it's on people of color to educate us on these matters, but should be on white people to realize themselves. 
At the same time, it can be hard for white people to fully realize on their own when we tend to live in this white bubble. It may be just a fact of life to be navigated. White people can be quite naive or optimistically, maybe the conversations about race going on in America today will change the thoughts and attitudes of people experiencing white fragility. Thanks for reading. And I look forward to hearing more podcasts. Christina. So she's taking what you're saying. White people need to, like, you know, basically stop coddling each other. Yeah. And be or, or stop being coddled. Yeah. And just start getting serious about the world around them and open, take off the blinders and start talking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely appreciate that attitude. And I think that for a lot of people, <clears throat> I was having lunch with a friend yesterday who's a white man. And you have white friends. I, I have lots of white friends. Oh I'm, <laughs> and and you know he was talking about how hard it is to start conversations on race. And I said, well, you know, are you in multiracial context a lot? Like where there's not just one? Because he's like, I don't want to gang up on the one black person in the room. And I'm like, well, maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> you need to hang out in rooms where there's more than one black yeah. person, yeah. where there's a quorum of not just black people, but really multi-ethnic people, you know? Yeah. And so we just, we had a frank conversation about it. You know, if you were in the room, we'd already be having this conversation and you could stand and listen before you jumped in, you know? Cause you know, part of it is like, there's an organic flow to conversations when you do put yourself in multiracial environments. And I think speaking for Tanner, who's not here, um, <laughs> but that was a lot of the premise of his book. Yeah. He was a white person who saw Barack Obama get elected and he was in a room full of other really happy white people who didn't know any black people on a, on a friendly level. They had a, the co-worker, the one in the room. And so he went on his own quest to understand the white bubble and what's going on with segregation in, in the country. So I, I will, I will uh, step back from some of the harsher thoughts that I have shared in, 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 on this episode and like why people need to do this and that. It's hard to change and I think all of us can think about parts of our lives where whether it's how we learn, how we interact with members of our family, how we think about U- U.S. versus other nations. Like we're raised in a certain way by the people who brought us into this world. We're reinforced with all this media. And I don't think it's as simple as saying white folks need to do better. And it's also not as simple as like people of color need to like hold white people by the hand either. It's like it's going to take a very long time. And I, I you know to the point of this last email that maybe some of the these recent conversations will change things a bit more to your point Raquel I think we're doing more than we have in a long time in this country I think all the cop stuff yeah. is maintaining the conversation at a higher pitch and frequency than we have before which is usually like a spike and then we're back to everything's great and I, well, I don't think we've returned to everything's great since Michael Brown's killing and let me let me just quickly clarify something I realized what I said before when when the person who wrote the letter said, you know, what if I get a call, get called a racist? I can't argue that may have sounded flip. But I think that the whole point is, why is the whole gambit discussing whether or not you're a racist? Mm-hmm. Why not just have some conversations with people of color about many different things? Like yeah. when what, if your idea of a conversation about race is that you're going to end up being called a racist, you're starting with a kind of fatalistic perspective Mm -hmm. of what a conversation on race looks like. Do you know what I mean? And to their credit, it's, that's not a made up fear. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of cases, especially with social media where folks who have our skin tone actually like to point and be like, that's mad racist. You should lose your job. 
You right. know, that joke was off the mark. We're going to find your employer. We're going to put your home address. I'm not saying all black people online do that, but I don't think the fears of being called a racist are just fears. I mean, they're grounded in mm-hmm. a shame and a concern that is has some realistic negative outcome, which is like, I don't want to not only feel bad inside, I don't want the world to think of me in this dark way, and I don't want to pay some price for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. I mean, Brian Lehrer show, which you guys referenced, I listened to a lot of those, and it was a ton of white people who were just like, I am paralyzed. You're talking about the, that episode where he's had, about white people He's had a lot of race. episodes of people calling in talking yeah. about race, one yeah. specific to white people, but it's been over the past two weeks uh, or, or more. I've heard a couple of white people have this, like, really, not a fantasy fear, but, like, an actual fear of, your people are gonna. They're looking. People are looking to call me a racist. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and that's bad for my career. It's bad for my family. It's bad for my rep. So I, I don't know. I think there's. We encourage white people to get in, but we also. I think a lot of us. If you are a person of color who is quick to call a white person racist for saying something, like maybe <laughs> check that instinct. Yeah, and, yeah. And just listen or offer like a slightly softer rebuttal, which doesn't you know send them scurrying, never coming back to the table again, which is bad for all of us. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody wins that way. I really encourage people, I'm begging you, please send voice memos because what happens is we have to sit here and read and read and read and read and then it takes away, takes time away from, you know, listening and discussing your emails and your, you know, opinions and we want to do that. We want to include as many as possible. So even if you like have to write it out and then just read it yourself, write the email, read it yourself and then send it to us like in in that way. Right. That yeah. way, so you don't have to fear. You don't have to. You know, if you if you fear like you're going to misspeak or say something wrong, just write it out, read it, and send it to us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And um, stay tuned because in just a few short moments, you're going to be blessed with episode numero diez, episode ten of our national conversation about conversations about race. <laughs> 